We have Shane. Shane, do you want to come on up? I'm so glad you are here today, Shane. All of your friends are out visiting or working in their gardens, but you decided to come to church, and I greatly appreciate that. Well, I want to talk to you about one of my favorite books in the whole world. This is a collection of seven books. Have you ever heard of the Chronicles of Narnia? Have you ever heard about that? Have you ever heard of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? I see the lion up there. You see a lion up there? Well, this book right here is all about a lion whose name is Aslan. And I wanted to... No, it's not this lion. This is a different picture. But this book talks about a place where there is an evil witch who has taken over the world. And she wants to kill everybody that doesn't support her and love her. And the, there is a, a, the, a guy named, uh, Mr. Beaver, who is kind of a brave hero guy, and he's watching every single day looking for four kids, two boys and two girls to come, because they're supposed to meet with Aslan the lion, so that they can defeat the, the evil queen and bring everything back to the way it's supposed to be. And this, is a statue or a doll of a beaver that I keep in my office and it reminds me of Mr. Beaver out of this story. And I want to read you just a couple pages out of this story because in the story, the boy, Peter, and his brother, Edmund, his sister Lucy and his sister Susan, they come to this land called Narnia and they meet Mr. Beaver. And this is what it says. Now Lucy said, please tell us what happened to my friend Mr. Tumnus, the fawn. And Mr. Beaver said, ah, that's bad, shaking his head. That's very bad business. There's no doubt he was taken off by the evil police. I I heard that from a bird who saw it done. And Lucy said, but where's he been taken to? Well, they were heading northward when they were last seen, and we all know what that means. And Susan said, well, Mr. Beaver, we don't know what that means. And Mr. Beaver shook his head. I'm afraid it means they were taking him to her house. What do you mean? Her house, the evil queen. Well, what do they do to him, Mr. Beaver? Miss Goose, Lucy gasped. Well, Mr. Beaver said, you can't exactly say for sure, but there's not many been in there that's ever come out again. She turns them into statues made of stone. Oh, Mr. Beaver, said Lucy, can't we do something? We've got to help him. It's too dreadful. It's, it's all on my account that Mr. Tumnus is getting hurt. Mr. Beaver said, you can't do anything. Well, can't we have some plan? Peter said. I mean, couldn't we dress up and pretend to be, oh, I don't know, peddlers or something and go out to her castle and and try and rescue Mr. Mr. Tumnus? And Mr. Beaver said, you can't do that. It's no good. You're trying of all people. Now that Aslan's on the move, we can just trust in Aslan. And they're like, who's Aslan? And he said, oh, Aslan, he's the king of the beasts. He's the lord of the woods. He doesn't come all that often, but... He's here now. He's in Narnia right at this moment. And he'll settle things with the White Queen. And as a matter of fact, I'm supposed to take him, take you to see him there. And they said, really? Well, what's, can you tell us a little bit about him? Because I'm kind of scared to meet a lion. And he said, well, he's very wild. And she said, well, is he safe? He said, no, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's the thing that I like about Mr. Mr. Beaver, you want to come up and look at him real quick? Don't touch him. You can look at him, but don't touch him. This guy, this statue, this doll reminds me of Mr. Beaver because Mr. Beaver was brave. 
and he was willing to put himself in danger so that he could try and find the two boys and the two girls to help fight the, the evil witch. And he brought them to Aslan, and Aslan was like almost like the god of that world, and he was able to help defeat all of the evil. And it was because Mr. Beaver was willing to do his part to help. So that's the story I wanted to tell you about, and I want to pray with you right now, okay? Jesus, I know this is way above Mr. Shane's head, but I pray, Father, that the truth of this allegory would settle in his heart, that you've already put a plan in place to overcome the evil of the world, and that the people of the world who already know you can point the others towards you so that they too can have the evil taken out of their world and that you can be king over them. So God, we give you praise. We ask that you bless Shane and help him, Father, to come to understand this truth in his own life and in his own time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, you can go back with your teacher now, okay? Truly and truly, ladies and gentlemen, the Chronicles of Narnia is one of my favoriteest stories in the world. I listen to it literally every night before I go to bed. We have an audio recording of the of these stories. And we go to sleep listening to them. And I could almost quote them verbatim because I listen to them absolutely every night. And as I was uh, trying to prepare for my sermon today, the Mr. Tumnus, Mr. Tumnus, Mr. Beaver was in my office looking down at me from his perch on my on my filing cabinet above my desk. He sits just to the right of my desk. And I was sitting there in my, in my recliner in my office looking, and I was looking right at it, and I was reminded this week why I purchased this doll. This is a, uh, it's called a one-of-a-kind art doll. It was crea- crafted by Mariska Wright, who's an artist who lives in our community. Some of you know who she is. But I bought this because it spoke to me volumes of who I am in God. If you look at the story of Mr. Beaver, and and we didn't get a, a full glimpse, even just a little excerpt that I read to Shane. But if you look at the story of Mr. Beaver, Mr. Beaver was given a task. He believed that the evil in their world, the evil witch, Queen Jadis, was going to be um, overthrown at some point. He believed that the prophecy that two boys and two girls from someplace were coming and that they would join up with Aslan, who is the son of the emperor over the sea, and that they would together defeat the evil in their world. Mr. Beaver didn't know when they were coming, but he, every single day of his life, went to the place where he was told he would meet these children. And he waited faithfully every single day until the day when indeed the children showed up. We're not told how long he waited. It could have been weeks. It could have been months. It could have been years. It was probably weeks. But when he met the kids in the woods, he kept saying to them, shh, be quiet. We can't talk here. It's dangerous. We've got to go where it's safe. And then he led them to his home in a dam in a frozen river. And it was there that he told them all about the plan of Aslan and and how Aslan was coming to rescue them from the evil queen and how they were part of the prophecy. And he and the, the reason that it speaks volumes to me, this this doll and why it's in my office is because as a man of God. It is my job 
as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, to be an effective leader to the people over whom God has placed me, whether whether indeed it is a, an authority thing or whether it is simply a, 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 a being a good, responsible Christian man. But the reality is for me, setting aside my own desires, setting aside my own wishes, setting aside my own safety in some cases, in order to accomplish the calling that God has on my life. And that's what Mr. Beaver represents to me. Mr. Beaver wasn't the hero of the story. Mr. Beaver was one of the ways that the, that the God of the story used to bring about the will of God, the, the emperor over the sea. Mr. Beaver played his role well. And he did it faithfully. And he did it regardless of the fear of the, of the enemy that was, that was ever present. And that has spoken to me for years about how I need to act and how I need to be. God has called me specifically to certain things. And I have to be faithful to that calling regardless of the discomfort or regardless of the inconvenience or regardless of the anxiety, regardless of the feeling of shortcoming. I'm called to a specific purpose, either as a husband or as a father, as a pastor. And it is my job to do that which is set before me to the best of my ability, with my best strength, with using the resources I had before me. And obviously, on at all moments, depend on God for the strength, the wisdom, the discernment, the understanding, the vision, the etc., etc., etc. So as I was reflecting on all of that, then I come to Matthew chapter 1. And I'm like, what are we supposed to preach? Because I don't have time in a 30-minute in a sermon or so to cover an entire chapter out of the Gospel of Matthew. So I have to be strategic in, in choosing a portion of the chapter. And if you did any of the reading that I encouraged you to do this past week, you'll have noticed that the first 17 verses of the, of the Gospel of Matthew, of the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, is literally a listing of a gazillion million names. Boring as all get out to read. But it has a purpose and it has a meaning. And the bottom line, and, and, and we shared this last time we talked about Matthew, the whole point of Matthew is that Matthew was trying to communicate the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, to the Jewish people, his own people. And he starts it out, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so he's making the case that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of David. He's making the case that Jesus was indeed a child of Abraham. He's making the case that indeed Jesus was a human being who also was God. But that's not what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25, which is the latter part of this chapter. And it's talking about the birth of Christ. And if you if you remember when we talked a couple weeks back about the overview of the book of Matthew, we said that the book of Matthew scholars call it the Hebrew front porch or the Hebrew porch of the New Testament, meaning it's the thing that bridges the Old Testament to the message of the New Testament. And it was specifically written to the, the Hebrew people, the, the people who were Jews who had come to faith in Christ. And it's this idea that that Jesus himself was foretold in the Old Testament 
and was the fulfillment of the prophecies and is indeed the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And these first or these last seven or eight verses in this first chapter talk about a specific human being. They don't talk about Jesus. They mention Jesus. They don't talk specifically about Mary, although they mention Mary because she's the mother, the woman who carried Jesus in her womb. But the person who is specifically highlighted from verse 18 to verse 25 is Joseph. And so as I was preparing the sermon and studying and, and just thinking and meditating on it over the course of the last number of days, I said, who was Joseph? Who is this guy? Why is he integral to the storyline of Jesus's birth? Why did Matthew show the genealogy with Joseph in it rather than Mary? Joseph wasn't blood. He was the stepfather of Jesus. And I honestly don't have an answer to that because there's too many scholars with too many opinions and you'll just have to do your own study. We're not going there today. I was so frustrated. I wanted just an answer. And no one wanted to give a definitive answer. They just wanted to give their opinion. And you'll just have to sort that out for yourselves. One of the things I did learn, Joseph, the word Joseph, the name Joseph means may God add or increaser, which I thought was just an interesting anecdote off to the side. Um, this is some of the, the meteor stuff, though, that I, 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 these are just notes that I picked up. And I'm going to then talk about my thoughts after I give you some of the snippets. Even as the, even at this early stage in Matthew's gospel, it's clear that God uses scandalous situations for his, his purposes and does not shy away from entering into them so that redemption and salvation could come. Because if you think about it, and we're going to talk about it more in a second, but think about it. Mary was asked to destroy her reputation by taking on, the, by allowing herself to become the mother of God. Joseph was taking on the same shame and the same um, backbiting, gossiping in the community by taking Mary into his home as his wife. During the sermon uh, that I spoke about, I already shared with you that it was the Hebrew front, uh, front porch of the New Testament. Um, I wanted to remind you that uh, Jesus is presented as the King and the Messiah to um, to the Jews specifically. And that's why for the genealogy to be there. But also, if you look in Matthew chapter two, it says the wise men asked for the king of the Jews. So this whole storyline is to understand that Jesus is the king and the Messiah. And then the narrative, finally, this is the last note I have. The narrative in Matthew chapter one links the story of the Old Testament with the new in the minds of the Jewish converts by showing that just like in the Old Testament, Joseph receives revelations through his dreams. Now, we're not going to talk about the dreams of Joseph until next week, because the bulk of chapter two is talking all about the dreams of Joseph. So we're going to kind of bridge Joseph over the next couple of weeks. But I want to look at who is this guy? And if you look at it, we're just going to quickly read through these seven verses, these eight verses uh, to give us a gens- just an understanding a little bit of who he is. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Jesus Christ, excuse me, betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
Her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall come, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph, history tells us, was older than Mary. Some people, and I, I, I was like, again, there was no definitive answer. Everyone has an opinion, so I can have my own opinion. I read one scholar that said Mary was like 14 and Joseph was 100. <laughs> right. But I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I read one scholar that said both Mary and Joseph were teenagers. I've read that Joseph was in his 40s, that he had had a previous relationship and had children by the previous relationship. Then his wife died and now he marries Mary. Everybody has an opinion. We have to go with what the Bible says. That's all we can do. And what the Bible says is that there was a man named Joseph who loved a a young girl named Mary. We don't know much about Joseph other than he was from Nazareth. We know that he was a tecton. That means craftsman or carpenter or mason or worker in metal. So this mind that we have that Joseph was the carpenter from Nazareth is more legend than it is fact, okay? We don't really know what his role in in society was other than he was a craftsman. He worked with his hands. So he was a person who was a blue-collar worker. He wasn't a scholar necessarily, because if he was a scholar, he wouldn't be working in those fields. He would be a, a rabbi with his own following. So he wasn't a scholar. He was a person who had graduated from the the Jewish Sunday school, and then after the age of 12, then was sent on to be apprenticed somewhere. And he was apprenticed apparently to be a tecton, which means he worked in stone and wood and metal. Nazareth, as we understand from from uh, archaeological digs, was a very, very tiny little place. Didn't really have a lot of industry going on. So where would this tecton work? Well, just a few miles away, there was this really nice, really large Area, I can't remember the name of it now, but that was likely where Joseph worked. Now, when Jesus was growing up in this home, Jesus would have wanted to go out with his daddy to go to work. And it's possible that Joseph took him along or at least at home. Jesus learned how to do crafty stuff with wood and stones and metal from his father, just sitting there in the evening and or on the weekends or whatever, doing stuff together. So Joseph was a hands-on dad, from what we understand. It's a little bit of conjecture because we're not given that in the scripture. But Jesus was most likely apprenticed by his own father to be a craftsman, to be a tecton. Joseph was a man who was righteous. Because if you read, if you go back up and read verse 19, um, it says, her husband Joseph being a just man. That means someone who followed the law of Moses. 
Someone who was intentional about his religion. Someone who was serious about honoring God with his life. Kind of makes sense that the, that the Holy Spirit of God would choose a man who was righteous and wanted to follow the teachings of Moses to bring him up, to bring up the son of God into that kind of a household. So it makes sense that Joseph would have been somebody who was honorable and righteous and, and trying to live a life that's pleasing to God. The other thing that I find kind of cool, and again, this is conjecture, this is not scripture, but if Joseph was a tecton, meaning a craftsman, that means he had to lift things with his muscles. Okay? He would have had to lift boards. He would have had to move heavy objects. If you look at people who do manual labor for their day-to-day living, they don't sit in the cab of a heavy piece of equipment and operate little things, but they're actually out there working with their bodies. If you see them, they are built men. They are men whose bodies, just by their day-to-day work, they are, they have little fat on them. They are strong. They have muscles. They are, their chests are, 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 are large and expanded. Their waists are, I mean, they literally have a V shape because that's how God created men. Broad shoulders, narrow hips. That's what Joseph probably looked like in real life. He was probably in his younger days, a guy that the ladies would go, hmm, interesting as he walked by. Cause he was a worker. He was a, he was a rough, probably had calluses on his hands. It's very likely, being a tecton, that it would have been said of him he was a man's man. He was a man who knew how to get his hands dirty and do the work that needed to be done. But he was an honorable man. He was a just man. He was a man who went to on, on the Sabbath. He went to the to the to the uh, to the uh, synagogue and he participated in the in the, the the readings of the scripture and in the worship of God. So this was a man who was living in a small little community in the middle of nowhere who had to go a couple miles across to go get find work to support himself and his family. He worked by the strength of his hands and the and the and the and the, the, the strength of his back. And he was a caring and honorable man. Now whether he was 80 years older than Mary, or whether he was exactly the same age as Mary, we have no idea. But what we do know is he loved her desperately. He was, they were betrothed. Now, in that culture, a betrothal was basically, you're married. You just aren't living together yet. And so, there was very strict rules for propriety and how you interacted with each other. There was no ever having physical intimacy as a betrothed couple. You waited until your wedding night to have any type of physical intimacy. Otherwise, you could be strangled or stoned or drowned or burned. And so could your fiance. And literally, if you go to the Old Testament, to the Torah, to the books of Moses, it literally says... If a young woman who is betrothed to a man is raped and she's raped in a field, she's given the benefit of the doubt that she screamed for help, but nobody could hear her. But if she's raped inside a city and she doesn't yell for help with her full head screaming, she gets killed. Okay, that's how serious their culture was. Women who were betrothed to be married had to remain chaste until the wedding night. 
and the groom also. And if anybody did any hanky-panky prior to the wedding, they could be killed. Because fornication, which is hanky-panky before the wedding, or adultery, or rape, is all punishable by death. So Joseph, being a just and righteous man, Mary, being a just and righteous woman, would not have in any way done anything to violate that prior to their coming together as a husband and wife. (coughs) Excuse me. Then all of a sudden... An angel comes to Mary and says, God has a plan. And Mary says, let it be done to me as you have said. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit of God causes her to conceive in her womb. And she leaves for a few months. She goes to live with her cousin Elizabeth. And then she comes back to Nazareth with a little baby bump. There's no hiding this baby bump. Because it says right here, um, verse 18... When Mary, who had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, was found to be... Well, how do you find out? They didn't have bunny rabbit tests. They didn't have EPT that you peed on the stick and and waited for the extra line to show up. How did they find out she was pregnant? The baby started to show in her abdomen. And when it was found that she was pregnant before they had come together, her husband Joseph... Her husband? Wait a second. They're not married. Well, in that culture, I just told you... They were as good as married. They just weren't married yet. So her husband, Joseph, being a just and righteous man who was unwilling to put her to public shame, resolved to divorce her quietly because the law of Moses says, if your spouse is unfaithful to you, you can write her a certificate of divorce and cast her away. And you're no longer bound to to being married to that person. So Joseph didn't want her to be strangled or stoned or burned or drowned. He didn't want to public, he didn't want to public humiliate her. He loved her. But at the same time, being a righteous and just man, he couldn't take her as his wife anymore. And so he decided in his heart, the best thing to do is to just quietly divorce her and move on with my life. And it says in verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, don't be afraid to take her as your wife because this is of God. And it says, Joseph woke up. Verse 24, Joseph woke up and got married and took her home and didn't sleep with her. And it says, until... She gave birth to a son. So what does that mean? That means A, he took her into his home before they actually had a public ceremony with the, with the hoopah, the, ta- the, the canopy, and the, everyone singing and doing the fiddler on the roof singing dances, and they smashed the glass and all that stuff. So everyone knew in that little tiny town of Two Rivers as Mary walked to the post office and the gas station and the laundromat, that she had a baby bump. Everyone knew. But Joseph owned the child as his own because he didn't divorce her as it should have been or he didn't publicly call her out. So he literally took on the shame of having had sexual intercourse with his fiance before the legal marriage. So they both took on the shame because they knew that this was God's plan. It wasn't easy. Imagine if it was you living here 
in that time with that mindset. But he willingly did this. And then it says he didn't have sexual intercourse with her. It it says he didn't know her. Didn't have sexual intercourse with her until she gave birth to a son. Now, there will be some Christians who will tell you Mary never had sex on a day in her life. I personally tell you, and I have nothing in the Bible to tell me this other than this one verse right here. I have nothing to prove it other than this one verse right here that they never had sexual intercourse as a married couple. But as a married man, I can't imagine never sleeping with my wife. I can't imagine spending... Well, we know that Jesus, that Joseph died before Jesus was 30. Scholars think Jesus died, uh, Joseph died right after Jesus turned 12 when he was bar mitzvahed. But sometime between age 12 and 30, so sometime in that 18 years... Joseph died, which means that some t- that, jo- that Joseph and Mary lived together as a married couple for at least 12 years and possibly 20. Yes, ma'am. But doesn't until imply that I, yes, but they don't say it. So we can't specifically say it. I can show you, however, in other parts of the gospel, in Matthew, in Mark, and in John, it talks about... Jesus' mother and his brothers and his sisters. There are some people who will tell you that those were stepchildren to Mary, that they were Joseph's from a previous relationship. There are some who say they were from Mary and Joseph's union. And we have absolutely no idea what. Except if you go to the time that Jesus is on the cross and he says to the to the apostle John, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. He was literally turning over the responsibility of the eldest to John because he was no longer to be able to be there to care for his widowed mother. So it makes sense that Jesus was the eldest in the household and that there were younger siblings. But again, it's not specifically stated, so we can't definitively say the Bible says. But the Bible gives us some hints and some ideas. But the bottom line is this, Joseph, a strong man, a man's man, a righteous and pure man, a just man, wanted to honor God more than he wanted to worry about his own, his own reputation or wanted to honor, I mean, worry about uh, what other people thought or wanted to worry about um, any harm to his business. Can you imagine um, what the business, how the business may have suffered because of all the, the gossip and backbiting about his impure life. Well, you don't want that guy working for you. But the reality is, Joseph was found to be a man that God himself could trust. And this is the thing I, I, that I wanted to, to, to focus in on at the, on the most as, I, as I'm wrapping this up at this moment. Joseph was found to be, have all the boxes ticked. He was strong, he was righteous, he was, he was true to God. But he was a safe person to entrust a child that was helpless with. We're going to see more of that next week when we look at chapter 2. When we talk about how Joseph was used by God to protect the infant Joseph, infant Jesus. 
But it was Joseph's responsibility to guard this house. Now, I didn't get into it with Shane, with the story here. But we intimated a little bit where we said that the witch turned everyone that was her enemy into stone. She was killing off her, her enemies and her intent was to kill off those four kids. And it was Mr. Beaver's responsibility to safely transport those four kids to safety out of harm's way. And that's what struck me as I was preparing this morning and this morning, this, 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 this week, as I was thinking about Joseph and Mr. Beaver, and I was like, you know what? Literally, I never, I've read this story for years. Since the seventies, I've read this story. I never saw Mr. Beaver as a Joseph before. But he was a, he was a, 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 a beaver's beaver. He was strong and he was a craftsman and he was courageous and he was righteous and he was pure and he was intentional of doing the right thing and he, regardless of his own safety and even though he put his own wife's future in, in, in harm's way because he felt this was his calling, he did what he knew to be the right thing. And that's exactly what Joseph did. That's exactly what Joseph did. Until Jesus was able to care for himself. And then God let Joseph come home. And I don't understand God's ways at times. Because wouldn't it have been cool for Joseph in his old age to be there with Mary to watch all the glories of what God did through their son? And know that they had a hand in all of that? But God didn't give Joseph that, that, that ability. And he, for whatever reason, allowed Mary to continue on the earth until long after her, her son died and was resurrected and went on and sit at the right hand of God the Father. But Joseph was a key player in all of this. And getting to the so what, why did we even look at this this morning? Again, it ties right back to this little Mr. Beaver doll that I keep in my office. I have for years, as I have my devotion sitting in my office in my little reclining chair, it's literally right in my line of sight. There's two things that are in my line of sight when I'm quietly meditating. One is the bronze statue of what's called the calling, which is Jesus calling Peter into being the fishers of men and Mr. Beaver. They're right in my line of sight. And both of them are iconic to me, speaking to me of who I want to be for God. I want to be a man who's not afraid, who doesn't hide or run from his responsibilities, but is willing to put his own life in, in danger if necessary to accomplish the calling that's on him. I want to be a man who doesn't run from evil, but stands in the face of evil, is wise and intentional and purposeful, but stands in the face of evil because he knows whom he serves. And I want to be the, uh, the man who's called of God to win souls for God, to be a fisher of men. Those are the two things that I have before me at all times. And so as you read in the coming days, the book of Matthew, and as you, if you're, if you're doing with me, doing the four chapters a day over the next six months, you'll read this gospel, this chapter of, of John, excuse me, of Matthew and the story of Joseph. You'll read it multiple times. Think about these things. Who was this guy? And what does his life speak to you? This is what it speaks to me. This, I'm just sharing with you what it speaks to me. I tried to give you a little stuff from commentators, but I don't like their words. I like my words better. Um, 
I got a master's degree. I can talk about it just as easily as they can. But the, uh, but the reality is for me, what I want to take away from this, I want to be like Joseph. I want to be somebody that God can trust with a really important job. And I want to do it well. And I want to carefully listen for the leading of the Lord as I'm walking that path. And when it's all said and done and my time is done because I've fulfilled my job, I want people to talk about my life and say he was a just and righteous man. That's what I want. So I encourage you, as you read the book, look at Joseph and see what his life says to you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word that is alive and speaks to us even today, 2,000 years after it was written. I ask God that you would please, please, please help us as we go through the coming days, as we look at Matthew. Just give us the words that you want us to hear. Show us the truths that are there for us to, to apply to our lives. And Father, help us, Lord. Help us to fulfill the calling that you've placed on our lives and to live in such a way that when it's all said and done, we can lay our heads on our, on our coffins pillows <laughs> and then enter into your presence spiritually and know that we're going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.